Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. This is 30 minutes of the best science stories, the greatest science stories and, you know, the science stories that just we find interesting. All wrapped up for you in a lovely package. My name is Claire and this week on the show I will be speaking to a special guest. We do have a guest on the show this week, Chris. That's exciting, isn't it? That is, that is amazing. Who is this guest, Claire, and where are they from? It is Luke Jeffrey. He's a postdoctoral research fellow from Southern Cross University, and he is about to blow your mind with some tree facts. One of these tree facts, I don't know if you know, knew this, Chris, but trees can emit methane out of the trunks, out of, out of, out of their trunks. They can emit what? methane, as in the, the um, greenhouse gas. They fart. Maybe. <laughs> And so Luke has been doing a lot of this research into that and also looking at um, the colonies of bacteria that live within the bark of one of Australia's uh, most beloved iconic trees, the paperbark tree or the melaleuca. There are actually bacteria that live in there that can eat methane. So That's amazing. It's pretty cool, isn't it? So Luke's going to tell us all about that and the research associated with it. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Chris. Yeah, I know. What do you have for us this week anyway, Chris? Well, well, Claire, I've been, I think I've been doing Lost in Science for 10 years now. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking, trying to work out exactly when the anniversary was, but it's yeah. about 10 years ago. Happy anniversary, Chris. Thanks. Thanks, Claire. And I've got to tell you, I've, got, I've lost count of the number of times that I've covered a story which is about hype, about possible new physics, new particles, something beyond the standard model of particle physics. Chris, do you go searching for those stories as well? No, I don't go searching for them. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously I'm interested, but yeah, okay, they, they okay. pop up in the news. They get headlines. Um, people ask me about it. They say, hey, Chris, what about this new particle I've heard about? And I roll my eyes and go, oh. Not another, another particle story. Because they always, basically, last 10 years, each one pretty much has turned out to just not come through. Chris, you're sounding like a jaded physicist look look the best kind you don't want these over enthusiastic physicists let me tell you they will tell you about all these hyped up physics and you don't it's not real anyway this time though this one this new result is a bit different this is a measurement of the anomalous magnetic moment of the muon particle that is different the theory and the experimental values are different at the eighth decimal place everyone is crazy excited about it Look, I'm going to go through it. I'm going to try and explain what it is, why it's a bit different this time, why many physicists sincerely believe this time it's real, this time there is new physics going on. But I'll also explain why maybe it won't end up being so different and we'll just have to wait and see. But uh, So fingers crossed it is a real thing, but uh, you never know. So I really hope the physicists weren't over-promising over this time, Chris. We'll find out. Well, on with the show.
So you have probably heard a lot about the greenhouse gas methane, its ability to warm up our atmosphere, uh, and probably heard about the cows whose burps contribute so much of it to the atmosphere. But you may not know that there's a growing body of evidence showing that trees give off methane as well. Treethane, if you will. Our guest this week is studying treethane and has published some fascinating research describing a methane-eating bacteria that lives in a very common Australian tree. To chat about this and the implications for global greenhouse emissions, we have with us postdoctoral research fellow from Southern Cross University, Luke Jeffrey. Luke, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks for having me, Claire. Nice to be here. Now, let's start at the start. What is methane? Why is it so bad for the environment? Well, a lot of us have heard about carbon dioxide as the main greenhouse gas that humans have been adding to the atmosphere, which is mostly responsible for climate change. Methane gets a bit less attention, but is also a greenhouse gas, but it has a different effect in the atmosphere in that it warms our atmosphere more than carbon dioxide by about 32 to 45 times. So I guess bucket for bucket of gas going up, a bucket of methane has the same kind of warming as 45 buckets of carbon dioxide. So it's much more much more potent and obviously one that we want to try and avoid putting up into our atmosphere. And obviously one that we must track quite a lot and quite consistently. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of scientists that each year try and pull together a global methane budget and... Basically, this, this is just a, a way of working out where all the methane is coming from, where it's all going. So they do their best to tease apart uh, the natural methane emissions that have been occurring for, for millions of years, where these come from, and also the, the anthropogenic or human emissions, which are mainly attributed to fossil fuel use and also agriculture and waste. So this is sort of where, I guess, the tree methane or the tree thane comes in because, I mean, you know, in my science class, I was never taught that, that trees emitted methane. Tell us about it. It's pretty, it's pretty mind-boggling. I guess trees have probably been emitting methane since there were trees. I think someone <laughs> said that to me earlier today, and that's, that's probably true. Apparently, about 100 years ago, in 1907, there was a, a professor, Bushong, in Kansas who was doing some research in cottonwood trees. He cut one down. There were gases coming out of the, the stem of this tree. And I think he actually took out his lighter and lit it and worked out that there was methane coming out of the tree. And so I guess for the last 100 years or so, it didn't really get much attention beyond that. There are a couple of studies here and there that, that looked at methane from trees but only really in the last decade or so, and it probably has a lot to do with, I guess, research and scientists really trying to, to nail the global methane budget, that there's a growing body of people that are looking at methane emissions from trees. We are finding it in trees, definitely not all trees and definitely not all the time. But, yeah, there's a lot of trees on Earth, so even small emissions might add up to something. And really, yeah, the research is just looking at where trees emit methane, why they emit methane, uh, how much, how little, just so we can understand, yeah, the, the global methane cycle and how trees, I guess, fit into those natural occurring emissions. I mean, there are, there are a lot of questions there and it sounds like this is a 
really, I guess, burgeoning area of research. What what do we know about how trees do produce methane? Very little at the moment. Our studies that we've been doing so far have mainly been focused on lowland forests or wetland forests or swamps, depending on what you call them. And these are the types of places on Earth that actually produce the most methane naturally. You get these waterlogged soils, lots of carbon from trees and plants, and this is where the microbes that produce the methane mostly live. And so we've, we've done a few different experiments and studies and it looks like most of the methane coming out of these trees is actually just the soil methane that's coming mm. upwards and out through their trunks. However, other people from Northern Hemisphere that are looking at sort of upland, dry forests, they're actually finding trace amounts of methane coming out of trees and they actually put this down to maybe just small amounts of internal wood rot or moisture that's within these deciduous trees. But... As I said, there's, there's only a couple of dozen studies globally, so no one's really pinned the tail on the donkey yet. It's, yeah. Right. It's lots of unknowns. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But in, but in general, it's, it's suggested that the biological process is the, the bacteria that are producing the methane and somehow it's being emitted through the trees? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely bacteria that create the methane in the first place. Not the trees themselves, obviously. Yeah. Not the trees themselves, but they're the ones that are emitting it. Yes. As some sort of vehicle. Yeah, almost like a, a straw or a conduit from the, the soil, if you like. Uh, that's kind of how we view them. Basically a, a pathway for methane to make its way out of the soil to the atmosphere. You've just recently published research about a microbe that eats methane. So not one that produces methane, but one that eats methane that's found in trees and a, and, a, and a pretty common tree in Australia as well. Can you can you tell us about that discovery? So this, I guess, was an idea that started probably three years ago with two of my supervisors, um, Professor Damien Ma and Scott Johnson from Southern Cross University. And we kind of had the idea that we're doing lots of work in, in Melaleuca forests looking at methane and these trees have just such an amazing, unique bark, this layered bark, and it just seemed like a perfect place for microbes to be living. And so we kind of had the idea that, yeah, maybe, maybe there are bugs living in the bark that use this methane as their energy source. And from there, we did a series of experiments to try and work out whether that was the case. We took some bark samples from trees, we put them in bottles, we dosed these bottles up with methane and then we could take them into a lab and kind of measure over time whether the methane in those bottles was being consumed. Mm. And, yeah, we found that it was. And so that sort of gave us the green light to, to go ahead with this study once we sort of tested that hypothesis and we reached out to some microbiologists at Monash University, the Greening Lab, and sort of with their help, we then did the microbial analysis to confirm that they were indeed living in this bark, and we sort of wow. paired our bark samples with those microbial samples, and remarkably, we actually found that the bark samples we had in our lab that consumed the most methane correlated really well with the bark samples that they had that had the most methane-eating bugs or methanotrophs living in the bark. That's kind of how it all came about. So this is Melaleuca, so what I would know is paperbark trees? Yeah, exactly. 
So Melaleuca's is probably the most dominant lowland or wetland tree we have in Australia. They're quite an iconic as well as mostly endemic to Australia, but this tree is actually found almost on every continent on Earth now. So 50, 100 years ago, uh, lots of people moved plants around the world and, yeah, in some places they're actually quite an invasive species. But, yeah, they're, they're an iconic species here, but they're actually globally distributed now too, so you'll find them in, in wetlands in lots of places on Earth too. And do you have any inkling as to whether these methane-eating bugs in the paper bark uh, would be fairly widespread throughout all sort of uh, Melaleuca paper bark trees? I have to say, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely where I guess the research will go from here. Yeah, looking at other tree species as well as Melaleuca in other countries and, yeah, I guess hoping that these are ubiquitous microbe that have adapted to living trees all over the planet. I mean, thinking about methane-eating bugs, um, you know, my, the mind boggles with the potential applications of that to uh, remove greenhouse gases from our atmosphere um, to contribute towards, you know, climate change mitigation. What are the possibilities that are running around in your head now? Not really my field, but I think the discovery kind of changes the way we look at trees. Everybody, as you said at the start, everybody knows that trees sequester carbon dioxide and convert that to oxygen that we breathe. But I guess discovering that trees can actually create this unique biome for methane-eating bugs can make us actually look at trees that they can sequester or convert methane to a less potent gas. Yeah, is, it, I guess, another ecosystem function that trees do for us. We need to know whether, yeah, these trees do this in all sorts of places on Earth or not. So, look, what would you say if someone asked you or made the argument that if trees are producing methane and methane is a greenhouse gas, then maybe we should cut down more trees? So definitely don't do that. Got to be clear, I suppose, that trees are in no way bad for climate and climate change. The amount of carbon dioxide that a tree would sequester in its lifetime will undoubtedly far outweigh any methane emissions that come out through its bark. At the moment, the government's globally plan on replanting one trillion trees. And so hopefully the tree thane research will, I guess, help people to plant trees in the most effective places possible to obviously draw down all that carbon dioxide that they do whilst hopefully avoid emitting any methane. Our latest research looking at methane-eating bugs hopefully makes us view trees in a different way that they not only capture carbon dioxide, but they can also eat up methane too. Luke, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Science and sharing your insights and your research um, into this new, this totally new field and giving us such a broader understanding of the humble tree not so humble actually very clever absolutely thank you very much Claire for your time too yes you're listening to Lost in Science my name is Chris and I am talking about uh, some new results that have hit the, the news recently from the Fermilab laboratory in Illinois, USA, that is strengthening the measurement of the muon anomalous magnetic moment, also known as G-2. 
physicists across the board are pretty excited. And I'm going to attempt to explain what this is all about. Okay. I, I look forward to your explanation, as it's, I it's, do with, with every, you know, big breaking physics story, Chris. I'm going to watch for your eyes glazing over here. <laughs> okay. First of all, what is a muon? Now, a muon mm-hmm. is a fundamental particle. It is the heaviest sibling of the electron. Um, oh. It was discovered in 1936. And because it's bigger, it's like an electron, but it's bigger, but it decays. Um, it doesn't last forever. It decays about two millionths of a second, which is just long enough to do experiments on it, but not too long that it hangs around and, you know, stinks up the place. <laughs> How did we find them? In other nuclear processes, they're produced by other particle interactions. Um, yeah, and basically it looked like an electron, but it clearly was heavier. It curved differently in magnetic fields. And yeah, um, we could tell it was a bit different. And then it decayed. So, yes. Okay, so then it was all over. But it was all, well, no, because we found lots of them still. And oh, also, right. they often come to us from outer space as well. Um, they're created in the upper atmosphere when charged particles, like heavier particles, hit the upper atmosphere. They produce oh. muons often. And you get these things called muon showers, which are exciting, but for about two minutes of a second. <laughs> that, is, that is a short shower. Anyway, so just like an electron, a muon has a negative electric charge. And because of this, it has magnetism too. Because you see, magnetic fields are created by moving electric charges. So if you think of an electromagnet, which has like current running through a wire, it is the current of moving charges in the wire that creates a magnetic field, creates your electromagnet. Okay? Okay. And any moving electric charge will create a magnetic field, including when you have a charged particle like a muon and it's spinning that rotation of the charged particle causes it to behave like a tiny magnet. And you can create the strength of that magnet. So you can calculate the strength of that magnet, uh, something that we call its magnetic moment. And we generally express this for particle to muon in terms of something called the gyromagnetic ratio or the G factor. Okay, the G factor. The G factor. Sounds quite exciting, Chris. Well, it should be boring. The G factor for the muon should be exactly two. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, This is because um, it basically the the G factor essentially relates the the spin of the the muon to its magnetic, you know, this magnetism. Um, So, but a muon is uh, it's a type of quantum particle called a fermion, which means it has a spin of half. Hard to explain what that means. So let's just say that it means it has to rotate twice before it returns to the same position it started with. It's a weird quantum effect. Mm. But because it has to rotate twice, that means its G factor is two rather than one if it only had to rotate once. So it should be two, except that it turns out it's not quite as simple as that. Because at this kind of particle quantum level, the muon interacts with other quantum fields. And at that scale, you've got all these kind of virtual particles that pop in and out of existence. And these all interact with the muon and their contribution adds up and makes makes its um, G factor different to two. So this is why they talk about the anomalous magnetic moment or G minus two, which is the distance between G and two. Okay. With me so far? So it's the difference that's important. Yeah. This is something that I am actually familiar with back in my, my deep secret past, well, not so secret past. I, um, uh, back when I was a PhD student, in fact, the first year I was doing my PhD, I did some calculations of the muon's anomalous magnetic moment. I was looking at a particular extension to the standard model of particle physics. The standard model is, it's like the 50-year-old theory we have that explains all the particles that we know exist 
trouble is, like, it's kind of incomplete. We know it's not the real thing. For instance, it doesn't include gravity, even. Um, and it's just kind of messy. Yeah, no one really likes the standard model, but it is very accurate. Um, but everyone's trying to find what's beyond it. So in this case, I was looking at some extension to it that involves some new particles. In this case, it was some extra Higgs bosons. Did some calculations on what happened with these extra Higgs bosons, and the results are published in 1995 in a paper called Phenomenology of the Two Higgs Doublet Sector of a Quark-Lepton Symmetric Model. Try saying that ten times fast. I, I have tried that. I yeah. have tried that. It was actually published in quite a good journal, Physics Review D, which is one of the top um, particle physics journals. So it's nothing to be sneezed at. Um, and look, I won't go into it too much now, but I might mention it again a bit later because... Yeah, it's it's pretty obscure, but it's relevant. We'll yeah, come back to that. Yeah. How often in your life can you can you reference it? <laughs> exactly. I don't, I don't think it's referenced that much, to be honest, Claire. I'm sur- I, I look, just between you and me, I'm surprised it was published in such a good journal. I mean, <laughs> I must have done a really good job. This is the first year of my PhD. So people like me can calculate the anomalous magnetic moment. And the current consensus best calculation was only released last year, kind of in, in anticipation of these new experimental results. And it had a value of 2.00233183362. Okay. See, the big surprise, though, that doesn't sound very surprising. The big surprise is that it's different to the best experimental measurement we had, which was from the Brookhaven National Laboratory on Long Island. Um, they released their result in 2001, and it was 2.00233184044. I don't expect you to remember all the numbers, but the difference is at the eighth decimal place. The, the theoretical result has a three, the experiment has a four. <gasps> da, da, did, da. Did, did someone just round up? No, no, because it goes on beyond that. There's more accurate than that. I do that to, what, um, 10 or 11 decimal places. So it's, you know... It's they've calculated pretty accurately. So back in 2001, this actually made headlines, but at the time it was only what they call a 3.7 sigma result, which is kind of um, the kind of the, gives you a level of the uncertainty of the measurement. Um, in particle physics, we normally require a five sigma result to claim a discovery. Basically, it means roughly one in 3.5 million chance of just being result being due to random error. So. They had this 3.7 sigma difference. They needed to get it more accurate. They needed to do more experiments. Um, magnets, you need a huge magnet to do this. They didn't want to make another magnet, so they shipped this same giant magnet halfway across the United States to um, Illinois, to Fermilab, to redo the experiment, but with more data, more muons. And just recently, they published their result, which is 2.00233184122. Difference is still there. No, but it was it was different, but it was basically consistent to the level of uncertainty with the previous experimental results. Okay. The difference is still there hanging around at the eighth decimal place. Um, it's still not a five sigma result. It's only 4.2 sigma. But the thing is that normally when you have these weird physics results, as you get more data, they go away. This one is getting stronger. So mm. it looks like there is something there. What is it? Well, okay, so the this anomalous factor is caused by interactions with the various virtual particles. So the best explanation is that there are one or more new particles that we haven't discovered yet. Mm, okay. So that's what people are excited about. Except on the same day that this um, experimental result was published, there was another theoretical calculation published in the journal Nature. And okay, so these these particles, that these different virtual particles, some of them interact with the strong nuclear force, which is a very, as the name suggests, is a very, very strong force. 
And it's so strong that it's very hard to do calculations. You can't do your calculations exactly. Uh, it's mathematically impossible to do an exact calculation. Um, so the consensus result, the theoretical result, uses estimates that are obtained from other particle interactions, and they use that to work out what the strength of this um, interaction should be. But this new calculation that was published the other day uses a different kind of method of computer modeling, where they basically calculate the strong force at discrete points in space and try and, you know, narrow down the uncertainty by doing these, these um, numerical calculations. And their calculation pretty much matches the experimental result. So it's different to the previous theoretical result, but it matches the experimental result. So essentially... It's either a battle between theory and experiment or a battle between two different kind of theoretical calculations. So no one's quite sure what's going on here. Um, we need, it could just be a calculation error on either side. Um, most theorists don't seem to be convinced that the, the consensus value is wrong. Um, and even if it was wrong, let's say you would need some sort of new physics to explain why it's wrong, because it should be the same. It should be an accurate result. But look, no one can be sure until we get, you know, more experimental data to narrow down the uncertainties and we get better and better, more accurate calculations. But um, yeah, look, it's possible that there's some new physics. Uh, meanwhile, people, of course, are going to publish new theories. So I want to say some words about that. Excellent. Because people are publishing new physics theories all the time and you'll often hear about someone's new hyped theory of everything. Yeah. In fact... I get them sent to me at the station. You've seen them. People send in their theories of everything. I have um, seen them. Sprucia. I have seen them. Yeah. No, and as I said, the standard model is not perfect. No one says it's perfect. No, no one is claiming that. We know, like, it doesn't even include gravity. We know it can't be right. So just you have because you have a new idea doesn't mean that it is correct. Because remember, <laughs> we are looking at when this difference between theory and experiment here that we're trying to solve with this muon um, anomaly, it's at the eighth decimal place. So if you have a new theory, you've got to be at least as accurate to eight decimal places mm. before you can even compete with the current standard model. Yeah. So you can't just throw out a new thing and say, ah, oh, it's, it's new, it's going to be better, because you've got a lot of accuracy to get to before you can actually compete on this ground. I talked about my paper that I had before um, with these new extra Higgs bosons. When I did my calculations, they actually didn't change the result for the muon. So you can actually create new particles and they won't make a difference. You have to have the right particles with the right strengths, the right couplings, the right kind of contributions to the to the muon interactions to actually make the exact correct experimental value. So yeah, I think that it is it is going to be a while before we actually know if it is a new theory, what that theory is. Um, but look, it is exciting times. It is kind of the most reliable hint for new physics beyond the standard model we've seen in a long time. And who knows, I could be eating my hat in, in a year's time or 10 years' time. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for staying with us. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR on the lands of the Kulin Nation and broadcasts across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsight.gmail.com. On Twitter, we are Lost in Science 1, or on Facebook, we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week when Claire, Chris, and Stu get lost in science. Lost in Science.
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.